good evening, everyone, and welcome to Arts Equator's Critics Life. I'm Kathy Rowland, the co-founder of Arts Equator. Thank you very much for joining us. So this program this evening is part of the Asian Arts Media Roundtable at CIFA 2021, which brings together critics from Southeast Asia, from Japan, from the UK, and from the US, together to really engage with the works that are being presented here as part of CIFA, which is the Singapore International Festival of the Arts. If I'm not wrong, CIFA is that this year is actually one of the first and the largest international arts exhibitions, art festivals that's opened since the pandemic is hit. And we're really <coughs> pleased that we can have you, audience members, join us from Singapore and from elsewhere, as well as with our panel of international critics here this evening. Um, critics Live itself is an open conversation, right? It's a, it's a platform where several critics get together and discuss a recent work because we understand that different people respond differently to works of art and so this is a way for us to open up that conversation and open up the critical space to different views diverse views sometimes conflicting views about a single work of art and we hope that you those who have joined us now either on facebook or on our zoom platform will also share with us your views and your questions because we'd really love to draw you into the conversation we're not just here to talk but we're also here to listen the format is very straightforward. Um, the critics, we've got four critics here to get today and four of us will share for a total of about 30 to 35 minutes. And we'll then, then take questions and comments from all of you. And you can post your comments either on Zoom or on Facebook um, live comment section, depending on where you're joining us from. So this evening, I'm joined by three colleagues, all of whom happen to have written for Arts Equator. Ben Valentine is a freelance uh, writer and curator who has spoken about arts and culture at South by Southwest and was a staff writer at Hyperallergic as well as in San Francisco Arts Quarterly. He used to be based in Cambodia, but is now back in the US. Michael H.P. Raditya is a researcher, critic and writer from Jogjakarta. His articles have been published in Tempo, in Galaran and in Salehara. He's an editor over 14 books on arts and culture and is a respected academic uh, and critic on performance in Indonesia and in Southeast Asia. Sharmila Ganison is a radio presenter, cultural critic, and a writer from Kuala Lumpur. At BFM 89.9, which is a business radio station, Sharmila hosts programs on current affairs, on arts, literature, and on pop culture. Her articles have been published in The Atlantic, in the South China Morning Post, and on new narrative as well. Shamila, Ben, Michael, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kathy. KK, if we can have slide number one. This evening, we're going to be talking about Scott Sylvan's The Journey, which is a narrative-driven, illusionist performance, I think is what we're calling it. Um, the panel watched it on two different nights, and the work takes place on Zoom with a very small limited audience between 20 25 people and it's participatory it's interactive um, where the audience at various times are tapped to either provide an object a comment a share a bit of personal information which then serves as the basis for the illusion that follows and also as a way to move the action kind of forward um so i think you know we'll we'll just drive in dive right in and maybe i could mm -hmm. ask uh, Shamila, maybe we can start with you. What did you think about the journey? So this was an interesting one, right? Um, I'll say right off that I I am a fan of illusions, um, illusionists, magic shows, but I wouldn't have thought of them in the context of arts and the arts festivals. Um, so it was interesting to see it being staged on that platform. Um, and, and I think that kind of framed the way that I looked at it and the way that I thought about it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I have to say that on some levels, it worked really well. Um, on some levels, I think it falls back into some of the um, limitations of what it is, an illusion mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. um, I think I just wanted to point out the two things that I thought worked really well. One was um, this idea of holding a narrative, um, having a narrative kind of threading all of the illusions mm -hmm. together. I think that gave the performance a little bit of an edge and, and possibly elevated it to perhaps what you could call 
arts or, or, or a performance that qualifies as something artistic. Um, but more than that, I think significantly, this was a really good example of how to use the online form and the online platforms. Um, this is a show that I feel um, I think it was very clearly conceived to be viewed and experienced online. Um, I would even wager that it might not work as well in person as it does on the online medium, which was very interesting for me. Mm -hmm. Right, that's right. I mean, you know, so much of, um, you know, as you say, it's kind of illusion, it's magic tricks, and so much of this really depends absolutely on being there, being there in person, so that, you know, there's no way that we can dismiss some of the acts as, you know, camera tricks or editing or kind of clever ways using technology. But this work actually did seem to work despite the limitations, right? Um, you know, one of the things, Ben, you've mentioned that, you know, um, you know, so then, you know, he's a mentalist and an illusionist that, that has already built quite a reputation, still not, you know, the kind of mega famous levels of the people that we've mentioned, for example, David Blaine, but he's, 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 you know, his reputation is growing and it's very much been about live shows. Um, but he was forced onto the online space, as we know, because of, of COVID. And, and you've, you've got a particular response to this work and how it, you see it within the COVID kind of pandemic context. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, thanks, Kathy. I, um, yeah, I think it's important. There's a lot of artists, especially performing artists, kind of considering right now, how do we deal with a lack of physical audience and, and being able to be uh, meet in person? And uh, there's artists all over the world struggling with this right now. And, and I think it's important to consider this performance in the context of the pandemic. Um, it was it was kind of framed as such. How do we connect? I'm stuck in my, he was saying, I'm stuck in my home here and I want to reach out with you um, all. So that was, we all had to bring a special audience and kind of share it with each other and, and try to make that connection across rooms. And, and he used his illusions to try to kind of reach out and touch us and, and build these connections. Um, ultimately, I felt like that was kind of hollow. It, it felt like the same illusions in this really intense the isolating um, moment and scary moment in history were kind of used as, as a kind of weak narrative to put his magic tricks upon, mm -hmm. which uh, kind of felt um, really kind of self-centered in a way. Uh, I was thinking about a, a New York Times article I read uh, right when the pandemic was coming out that was about performing arts and, and does it matter, do we need this? And it talked about in London, uh, during World War II, there was this famous performance by an orchestra that went out and risked getting bombed and and um, just did this big performance and everyone came out and really like risked life and limb to kind of, they needed to feel connected and they had been so isolated and scared for so long that this performance, this orchestra really brought them together and, and they all went out and enjoyed it. And that, um, this really kind of bold, defiant and also coming together um, in despite of limitations. So that's not pandemic, but um, I was kind of thinking about this performance in comparison to that and how it felt like <clears throat> my very special object was just a ruse for a, a sleight of hand trick. Right, and, and yes, no, no, it, it does, because I think one of the ways that the show was kind of put forward and the, a, a large part of what Scott kind of shared with us was um, a story or a narrative that takes us from through the eyes of a young boy named Callie, right, uh, who moves through a very desolate Scottish landscape and through his journey through this, this landscape, you know, moves through time. And then he was building a link between this young boy's narrative, who I, I think the young boy is kind of an avatar for Scott, it seemed to imply that it was, was then a connection to us spread across the world watching this show and our relationship to time, our relationship to being separated, and our relationship to being isolated. But you're saying that with all of this setup, um, the weight of, of the reality that we're living in in the moment, um, it, the, the, the work didn't, didn't match up to it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think he, he imposed that problem on himself. He's saying, right now, we're all like isolated in our house, and how do we connect? And I want you to to come to my home and, and I'm going to reach out through technology and, and we're going to really 
build this connection together. I'm like, okay, did you? And I share a really important, special thing to my heart. And it's uh, it becomes this sleep little sleight of hand trick. So uh, I didn't feel that. If I can just quickly jump in, um, I wanted to yeah. say that I think if he hadn't hammered that over our heads so many times, right. the, the the intimacy of what was happening, I actually felt this, you know, because they projected all of the different audience members onto the yeah. walls behind mm -hmm. him. Um, you know, we got to almost listen to and talk to people who are in all sorts of different places around the world. Um, he didn't have to keep pointing it out. I think the, the pointing it out started feeling very hokey and almost cheap. If he hadn't, it would have felt more subtle and sort of like a, letting us feel it rather than him just, yeah, going too hard on that point. Completely right. agree. Yeah. Michael, you actually, but you kind of felt that it, the narrative worked, right? You enjoyed parts of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. First, I would like to start my turn with thank you and uh, congratulate to Scott Silpen on his piece, yeah, The Journey. The duration of this performance is 50 minutes. I watched his performance on May 18, I think about 10 days ago. Mm -hmm. At home, Yogyakarta, Indonesia, it means like Scott Silpen in Scotland, and then you in Singapore, Ben in America, and me in Yogyakarta, Indonesia. So thank you, Siva, and Asian <laughs> Arts Media Roundtable for making this happen. Yeah. In my opinion, the performance is very challenging, at least for a critic or writer like me, because uh, I have to point like first the audience expectation and uh, and the second one is my reflection. Mm -hmm. The first is uh, because the performance made me rethink the basic of watching and the negotiation of expectation. Yes, this performance made me realize audience expectation. It reminds me about the classic idiom like. Are we watching a performance like carrying or borrowing an empty glass to the stage? Or we always watch the performance with the full glass or half and so on? In, 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 in my opinion, it, it's like uh, these things resonance to our sublime or satisfied reason what we watch the performance. I know this performance is artistic, but it really mind, uh, yeah, I think that the audition is important to us. Like this is magic and then what is performance like? Uh, uh, Samila said in the beginning. Then uh, I have my reflection. I think that I have a little note for the performance. Like for me, this performance has a rigid structure. Yeah, we start the performance with the story turn and then the participation turns and back. I think it happened about four or five times. For me, it's too rigid. I have problem with that because mm -hmm. the rigid structure allows me to guess uh, the the shows the shows plot. Like what's next? Oh, this is participation. Oh, this is a story. And then ah, uh, it's like for me that's a problem. So in in my opinions, like Scott Silver needs to rearrange the flow and the participation format, yeah. Because for me, he plays the show so well, but he's not playing playful. In Malay language, is main main. Mm -hmm. I cannot lie. If he success with playing with our memory, like uh, at the moment Ben with the ring and you with the Katie with the earrings and mm -hmm. but. He can do more, like like playing with his magic and playing with the show itself. I think that it will be astonishing, especially when we talk about contemporary arts. Yeah. So it's really interesting because on on the one hand, Ben is kind of pointing to a kind of hollowness or a lack of sincerity in the work, mm -hmm. and you're kind of pointing to although you enjoyed it, you also think that it was the rigidity was you know it. it there was a lack of playfulness with it. So for those of, of you who may have not been part of the show, uh, and we'll try, we'll be avoiding kind of spoilers, but what happens at various points of the 50 minutes is that uh, Sylvan engages with the audience flawlessly. I mean, they were just, you know, in terms of time lapses and so on, it was just perfectly managed. You didn't really feel all the lags that, you know, maybe even be happening now. Um, but what, what happens is then he, he invites the audience to share, let's say, a, an important item, which we were prepared before we went on to already prepare. So it happened that Ben shared a wedding ring that had been made, had been made by his father-in-law. And I was then called and it happened that I had shared a pair of earrings that had belonged to my mom. And Ben, am I right that, that it, you know, you shared, we both shared quite personal stories because we were invited to share personal stories right right and i don't know about you kathy but 
if if we like meet in this international space and it's so amazing to have like you said michael uh this really different audience together in this kind mm. of room and we're we're about to share these really intimate items with each other and then it's like okay and next and behind door number one is and it's like oh i should have just you know shared a random thing like <laughs> it didn't seem to really make make a big difference it just moved on so quickly i, I wanted it to work right yeah. and and as you said kathy uh, I've put on a lot of online events. They're really hard. And he did it flawlessly. Mm -hmm. And it was a really complicated online event. Uh, not before even the magic, uh, mm -hmm. just all these screens that were popping up and moving and, and it was really well done. So um, I don't want to be completely negative. It was quite impressively organized. And, but yeah, it was right. a lot of bells and whistles for not a lot of substance in my mind. Right. So, so we kind of, we come in there and then, and then that takes us kind of back to what I think, Michael, what you're saying, which is structurally, if you're, and, and let's, I mean, I, for speaking for myself, I mean, I went through the gamut of, uh, of, um, of effects and, and emotions right through it. I mean, from suspicion to cynicism to, oh my God, how did he do that? To, oh my God, he's the devil to, you know, <laughs> that was amazing. And I'm so engaged and I love this to, Okay, well, you know, but I think, um, but if you really pay attention, um, and it did feel, it flowed beautifully, visually, it was stunning, but, you know, if you do pay attention, then you realize that it is very structurally, very, very clear. Everything is, is um, engage with the audience, get something out of them, uh, perform a really mind-bending illusion, and, you know, in that he, he again you know i think he was incredibly skillful and it was it really did evoke wonder but then what happens then is then there is narrative and then we move on to the next audience engagement followed by illusion narrative and so on and that was that kind of rigid structure did, did um so which do you feel served what right i mean do you feel that the illusions um served the story or the narrative or the narrative served the illusions so that's the complicated question at the heart of this isn't it because at the end of the day he's an illusionist mm. um each the show is about the illusions um i mean i guess maybe because that's what i went in expecting um I was a lot more forgiving of that, hey, this is what I'm doing, or, um, you know, look here and then look here, I've produced, because that's what a magic show is. Um, I think when that gets complicated is, again, when it gets packaged as a more than that. Um, and I'm wondering whether if I had watched this at any other platform, if I had just watched it as a magic show and not as part of Sifa, maybe I wouldn't be as questioning. I've, I've, seen, I've seen a magic show that's structured around the seven sins or, or biblical miracles. I didn't have a problem with it not having an, a, a philosophical undertone, right? Um, but in this one, I did want more. And, and I don't know whether the wanting more is because it's it's been sold that way. And it's also being sold, um, actually, as Ben said, as a time to connect and let's try and sort of work through some of the feelings that we've been having over the last year. So maybe in that sense, it sets, it, it, it sets its own expectations a little too high and at the wrong place. Right, right. So it, it kind of feels like the emotional engagement that the show is, you know, that the emotional engagement the show asks for us in a way doesn't really feel earned by the end and of I'm it. I'm wondering whether it even exists in this genre. I mean, yeah. does this genre, will this genre ever be able to be more than just trick, trick, trick with yep. something holding it together? And I mean, I don't think that there is any shame in being, you know, trick, trick, trick. Oh, no. Right? I mean, so that's, that's in a way kind of... I. I yeah, I just want to kind of make it clear that it seems as if we're not being snobbish about it. We're not kind of putting a benchmark for what is high art and what is yeah. low art. Uh, but it, it's more just that kind of, you know, um, if you're going to uh, cloak yourself with a kind of particular kind of legitimacy, then then we would like for it to be delivered. Um, so we're going in quite a, you know, um, 
I think you know it appears as if we're all being quite negative about it. But um, can can we talk a little bit? I, I think two things I want to ask you. What you know? What did you enjoy of it? What experience yeah. did you take away that was really good? And then, Michael, I want to cue you to talk about a little bit. You've talked about this idea of magic, right? Yeah, yeah, and sure. magic within the Indonesian context. So maybe Ben, you can kind of tell us a little bit of what you felt was really really worked, and Sham, and then we'll go to Mike. What really worked? Um, yeah, I I have not been to magic shows, and and I I've kind of always felt like they're hokey. I I try to like embrace the illusion, and and I want to, but I'm I always know that there's a tr like that it's not magic, uh, that there's a trick, and and I don't see it, and I'm impressed. But um, but yeah, he I can't explain how he did what he did. It was impressive, and then. The technology that he managed to all customized, I believe, uh, really. And and my fear for him was that the illusions were just going to get so much weaker because it was online. Because I felt like, I mean, it's so easy to cut angle or something and and just make it seem like such an obvious uh, sleight of hand. But it really felt just as impressive as as I imagined seeing it on the street or or in a live person event. So I'm I'm very impressed with how he managed to to translate this this medium into uh, this context. Yeah, it's it's quite Sean? impressive. Oh, I wholeheartedly actually enjoyed it. Um, I didn't mean to give the impression that I didn't. I was wowed. I was when I was done, I was texting a bunch of friends saying, I don't know how he did that. Um, I almost believed in magic while watching it. So I mean, it, it was if I took off my critics hat, if I took off my I'm doing a panel on the show hat, um, I think it was great entertainment for a for an afternoon. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's what that's what I really enjoyed. And I, and I think there is something to be said for that. Um, at a time like this, when actually being on a video call or a Zoom call is actively a pain for me, I didn't mind this at all. Right. That's a good point. Um, and Michael, you yes. you said something. You were talking yeah, a little yeah. bit about the context of magic. And yeah, 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 yeah. I think that yeah, the magic. Yeah, it means like it relates with the my previous uh, point, like uh, audience expectation. Honestly, it, it is was this was so difficult for me to watch magic performance. For your for your information, I'm Indonesian, and magic or illusion show was often shown on television. The people of Indonesia have been presented with the annual magic competition on television. The master, we call the master. There's a regular magic show in Indonesian television, like there are many magician here. It happened in 2009 to 2012, I guess. And then several years earlier, we had known David Coverfield. I think he is king. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my trajectory to uh, of, watch, of watching a magic show. This this thing has impacted me. So there are prejudices that can be imagined when watching Scott Skelton's performance. And I try to throw it away while watching him. But I can assure you that uh, there is a spectacle and wow effect while watching Skelton's uh, performance. Yeah. For me, he is a cool illusionist, I guess. Uh, yeah, and Katy asked us about uh, what what, uh, what the good point of this performance. I think that uh, I realized that there is a keyword of performance. I believe we know it already yeah, because he said the keyword not only once but several times. It is connected in the context of COVID nineteen. The time of the connectedness is essential, especially the live streaming context. I guess. We are far apart, but he tries to connect us with the materials or objects that are close or around us, like sleepers. <laughs> I, I believe the audience that has their experience with objects, I guess, yeah. And with the magical powers, he did it uh, with an audience participation format. It reminds me of his statement: "This is not coincidence, but but the beginning of but the begin of our journey." <laughs> I wrote it. For me, the statement is remarkable, yeah. And yeah, the narrative point, I, yeah, this is so strong. And I don't know, but I I enjoy with the how Sylvans uh, manage the space of technology because we can see that from the pre-show video, 
-hmm. there is a specific website that attracted us like the website there's a video and then there's mm -hmm. uh, audio some, something like that and when we talk about these performance uh, i think they also manage a space of imagination with the immersive art and yeah immersive art i guess and i think that he used the immersive art effectively yeah because there's a just only little room there i think that and he can make the closed space like closed space into the open space for the imagination yeah like that. yeah yeah i think that, i mean you know i mean and visually he did that you know through through maybe technology might that might have been quite simple but that was quite beautiful ben yeah. you've mentioned that some of the 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 techniques and some of the forms that he used, you know, are not new. I mean, these are old forms that are old practices mm. that you that have been present in new media arts for a long time. Um, how did? Can you maybe kind of talk a little bit more about the history of that, and mm. maybe kind of maybe tell us a little bit how you felt, you know, whether he used this and he used this in ways that were innovative and were fit to purpose, or it was, you know, kind of really in the end didn't work. Yeah, um, yeah, because it was considered or positioned in an art context, um, then I think that only worked to his disadvantage, like Sharmila said, um, that maybe if he just embraced spectacle that I would have liked it just more. And, um, but because it's in an art context and, and I'm an art critic, uh, I always think about things in art history. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it was a networked media performance. And so, he connected a group of people from various locations into a room and, and shared this performance. And I, as I said, he did it really effectively. He used the technology really flawlessly. Um, there's a lot of pandemic performances right now that are pretty low budget artists in living rooms. Um, and there's some sincerity to that, right? There's, it's uh, like, we're all going through that. So I think that has value, but um, one thing he reminded me of is, uh, in a way, it was Wafal Bilal, who's an Iraqi-American artist. Mm -hmm. And um, in 2010, he did this performance, Domestic Tension. Um, so the, our, the uh, American wars around the world were raging and, and he's Iraqi. Um, and he gets in a gallery and puts up uh, live streams himself in the gallery for, I think, 30 days. And he's living in this gallery and there's a paintball gun. And you can people can get on this kind of chat room and move the paintball gun and shoot him. And it's talking about media and portrayals of Iraqis and like distancing and othering of um, Iraqis in the media. Mm -hmm. uh, and thousands of people got on and shot him. And he was like he uh, was in this room and it was really traumatic. But then people, his friends started getting on and they would like steer the uh, paintball gun away from him when other people started trying to shoot him. So it became this really problematic, but very intimate and personal connection and, and really um, devastating commentary about American media and kind of colonialism. Um, so there's, I mean, since the dawn of the internet, we've been trying to find ways to connect and artists have always been there um, pushing that medium further out. So, um, yeah, that's that's one performance that that came to mind because it was in this room and and people were all connected in a very intimate and and problematic way. Mm -hmm. And that would have happened within the context of the the emergence of, of early years of drone warfare, wouldn't it? Uh, I mean, not super early. Yeah, yeah. Was this? It was mm -hmm. 2010. With the distancing from, with the distance from, from it's all kind of there's a distance to the killing, right? That it's not a up close and personal kind of killing, right? And he wanted to put that right in front mm -hmm. of you and and um, yeah. kind of localize and that into his body. And, so yeah, and so so in a way, so it kind of it, it I think also comes back to this thing that we're talking about where, um, you know. What Trump, you know, referred to as the philosophical intention of the art it, that seemed to be missing, um, but it's not something that we would have expected it to have, right? But it, it seemed to kind of want to assume that it did, and that that uh, that was one of the issues. 
Um, but Sham, you found that the technology kind of worked. You liked aspects of it because it, you felt that you know it allowed you to move into the work in a way that you don't normally want to. Yes. Um, so I'm not a huge fan of being called on to participate in live magic mm -hmm. shows. Um, I make it sound like I attend them every week, but you know, on the occasion that I have, I don't necessarily like being called on to go on stage to mm -hmm. be part of the act. And I think um, within the context of this show, uh, having it done in this way where you're just a, a face on a video call with many other faces on a video call sort of makes it a little bit easier and a lot more enjoyable. It, I actually did get that sense of um, that thing that all of these performances aim to do, which is to make you feel like you're somehow part of a space, mm -hmm. uh, which is very difficult to do on a digital, digital performance. Um, mm -hmm this actually did manage to do it. I don't know whether it had to do with his set as well, which was very deceptively simple. It's beautiful. And then all the projections that he works with mm -hmm. um, and the fact that we are physically quote unquote situated in that space. Mm -hmm. I think that helps, um, you know, he kind of introduces the room by the camera panning and you kind of see the audience. Mm -hmm. All of these things I think work quite well um, to, to, yeah, the technology works in creating a sense of space. And um, it did also get me thinking um, on that on that line of what Ben was talking about. Um, you know, TV magic events used to be a huge thing. I'm thinking about David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear or, right, um, yes. you know, David Blaine and the suspended over the River Thames, uh, Thames or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like this is actually just picking up that thread and taking it a step further in the sense that this idea of illusions being done on a screen, um, sure, we all wonder, we all think oh, there must be 200 people we, we don't see just beyond the frame making things happen. But then we're also fully willing to suspend disbelief and, and kind of believe that may not be the case. And um, so in some sense, um, Ben's right that this isn't necessarily new either from a, a, a new media perspective mm -hmm. or even actually from a televised magic show perspective. But it, yeah. it sort of quite cleverly pl uh, plays in a, in a space that's interesting for me uh, in terms of bringing the audience into the whole thing. Right. And actually, that was that you're right, because we've all been watching a lot of online shows, but that was one where, um, you know, what you miss, of course, it's when you're, for example, if you're in a, in a space in a theater around, then, you know, you're, you're not just watching the action on stage, but you're also watching your fellow audience reactions to you. And there was this beautiful moment when, you know, all of you could see each other several times and there was the, i mean the transparency of it made it made it actually even more beautiful for me because there was a kind of you know um insubstantiality to it that reflected our the way that we were experiencing it as well um so we've got a couple of interesting comments from members of the audience and um one for example is from katrina who is also who is a critic who's part of um you know who's written for articulated many times and she was on the night that uh, on the 18th of May, which is when Ben and Michael and myself were on. And, and it was true that on that particular night, she says that uh, on the one point our special objects were used, on the point about our special objects being used and whether what was used, whether it was used in a superficial way, it might also be dependent on how familiar the audience is with each other. The night that we watched, uh, the majority of the people were familiar. And so we were kind of looking forward, I think, to each other's stories, contributions, and to some extent, the connections might not have been manufactured by the performance them but itself. Um, I mean, I think that that is that is a point because actually, all in my case, for example, everyone that was called on the night that I watched with Ben and Michael, I actually knew. You know, I and I so that was perhaps a, a slightly different experience from let's say the average audience. We, it just happened that you know we we there were writers who had written for Antiquator or people within the Singapore art scene that we knew. Um, but um, I, I think that the, this, this issue of, so obviously, you know, for Katrina, she felt that there was a connection and that there was, I, I hope Katrina, I'm not misunderstanding your comment, but you're, you seem to say that there was a connection, but that connection came really by happenstance because there were people that knew each other as well. Um, you know, uh, coming back to your point, Shamila about you know the and Ben as well 
and to some extent also Michael that you know some of the things that we're talking about this is a magic show it's illusion that it's you know it's 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 televised or it's mediated in some way whether on TV uh, you know through you know Asia got Asia's got talent I think they had a number of Indonesian um, uh, illusionists in fact the winner was a young Indonesian uh, fabulous fabulous illusionist Ooh, right um, but um I think one of the one question which I really love is from Max, who is uh, who runs um, Arts Public, which is another arts website in Singapore. And he says, look, he says, I didn't catch the show, but I'm curious. What did the show do to make the audience share personal stories comfortably? That's his first question. Um, and then his next question, which I'll follow up with, but would maybe someone can just share if you remember what was it that why did we all com feel compelled to bring our little objects and you know share so much i mean i overshared for sure it was the pre-show instructions right we're supposed to bring an object that means something to us i think that was the brief um and so and to relate to what katrina said so i knew no one on the okay. day that i was on the show and when she said it i'm wondering whether there's something to what uh, ben pointed out I think because I didn't know anyone and it just so happened that on the day that I was there, nobody actually shared anything too personal. It was sort of, maybe it was meaningful to them, but mm. it was essentially, um, this is a pillow that I hug when I'm feeling sad, or this is a ring that my, and, and I'm sure the ring had meaning to them, mm. but I also didn't really feel like, oh, they had shared this anecdote that was super heavy and deep. And then all he did was do a magic trick. It felt sort of like, yeah, okay, I get why they brought that, but I wasn't particularly invested anyway. So maybe it entirely depends on, again, you guys maybe felt a little bit more comfortable because there were so many familiar faces. And so yeah. there was more of a sense of intimacy and therefore a cheap trick at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was invested in, I mean, you know, I kind of was both, you know, kind of wanting to, um, you know, invest in the process because it appeared as if he wanted something personal, something that meant something to you. Um, and so I thought he would, you know, pull out from that some kind of amazing revelation, which of course I was then going to be absolutely cynical about, right? Because I, I, I got a bit of a cultish vibe from him in the pre-show when I was listening to him. <laughs> Which, you know, he's obviously an excellent performer in that way. Um, um, Michael, did you feel, did you feel that the sharing of objects, uh, did you feel a connection with the other audience members? Uh, my, okay, okay. Uh, at the moment, I bring, I brought this pen. <laughs> And I just take from yeah, around us like around around me there there is a pen and I bring it. But I'm interested with the you know other other stuff like I remember that uh, there is like a Indonesian participant in Asian Arts Meridian Media Roundtable must mm -hmm. you know bring the guitar like that so that's why I'm curious with that it means like because I I I knew many person there so that's why there's like connected. Uh, yeah. made like that and and i think the 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 reason i mean i think to answer matt's question as well is that the reason that a lot of us did well i know i did bring in something quite personal was that you know half an hour before the show you're supposed to listen not just not just instructions to bring something but to actually listen mm. to like a three minute kind of um very poetic mm. um slightly hokey kind of, you know, kind of um, call to your emotional heartstrings about connection. So, so that, I, I think that kind of sets you up. Um, Max then also asked, because I think we've been talking and we've been skirting around this big question of one, is it art? Um, which maybe is less of an interesting question. And then the next question is, um, you know, does it belong in a festival? Which are sound, they sound as if they're the same questions, but they're really very different questions. But I think he's also talking about, he's asked the question, are works framed and constrained by genres? Um, you know, and that's, and are works framed and constrained by presenting platforms? You know, does it make a difference that it was in the Singapore International Arts Festival, which has built a reputation as being, you know, very prestigious? It is the, one of the largest arts festivals in Southeast Asia, if not in Asia. Do you think that um, we are damning it a little bit because it is not fulfilling our expectations of what a magic show should? 
should should confine itself or are we are we being are we are we being negative about it because it's being a bit uppity for sure um i i i hate the question is it art i i think it's like if someone says it's art that they made it and like great it's art um but the question is what was benefited by having it in this context or considered as art is a, is a very interesting one for me and i um I think that my criticisms are all strength or made more severe by the fact that I, I came to it with a bit of an art context and in this context. Um, and I, I do wonder if I was invited to see an illusionist give a performance and he um, just did magic tricks. If I was just like, oh, that was really fun. I loved it. Um, I do think that he put that limitation, as Charm said, like, he put that narrative on it and he added all these um, things about connectedness and uh, yeah, that that just kind of hurt himself. I wonder like uh, Cirque du Soleil or some of those, the bigger uh, illusionists, if he had just said, I'm gonna do magic tricks for an hour and if I would have loved it more. And I, I think the answer is yes. Okay, Ben, but let me, can I kind of just clarify, are you saying that you would have, you know, uh, so is it because he included narrative in, in the work or is it because he included narrative, but it did not, um, it was insufficient to move you? It was insufficient, to, insufficient narrative uh, that was only made worse by the arts context. So I, like I wanted really good narrative because I was approaching it as an art critic. Uh, I wanted uh, more nuanced connections and relationships built, more intimacy uh, that weren't. Mm -hmm. um, so if it was just, hey, Ben, join a illusion. And he did the mat. If he just did the magic tricks, I would have been completely entertained. Uh, but then that would have just been kind of mass spectacle and that's fine that's fine um yeah, yeah. uh so this question about you know um works framed or constrained by the presenting platform i mean i did feel i didn't have a problem with it being part of cifa because um you know cifa is you know it's a festival that includes all the genres and every year there is always you know there is some element that's very populist you know you'll have fire eaters you'll have circus you have beautiful acrobats which are the and these often are the free events that everyone engages with alongside works that are really pushing the boundaries and and i think that you know it has tried to especially with the under direction of the current uh, festival director who's uh, Gar um, garof who's actually in his last year um you know it, it's been a, a kind of balancing act of local commissions international works um, um as well as with works that you know um yeah i guess could be described as quite populist so to me programming the journey was actually quite a clever move because you know in, in anticipation of the fact that we might not be able to do some of the much more open free events that um people might want to engage with so i you know i i i didn't think that it i didn't have a problem with this being there alongside with let's say something that was much more beautiful and much more difficult to engage with like garden speak which is a, a work about um the syrian deaths for example but um did any of you, did either any one of you have a problem with the fact that you were here invited in the Singapore International Festival of the Arts to watch a work that was essentially an illusion work? So I think that CIFA benefits more from having Scott Sylvan on its roster than Scott Sylvan benefits from being featured by CIFA. Mm -hmm. So I think that CIFA and, and other arts festivals all need to do more to for lack of a better phrase, and this is not a criticism about CIFA in particular, get off its high horse a little bit, because I think increasingly with the with the competition for content, and, and if we're talking about an online space now, the competition for eyeballs, um, populism, populist entertainment rather, isn't always bad entertainment. Um, and it's it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. And I, I also don't agree with this high art, low art 
classification. Um, however, I think that Scott Sylvan, on the other hand, might be saddled with the kind of expectation that perhaps his act doesn't deserve mm -hmm. because it's in the Singapore International Arts Festival. Um, perhaps it's not the worst thing because it will give in, bring in a new audience for him. But yeah, I, I do think the winner is actually Sifa. It's a good point. Yeah. Michael? Yeah, sure. Uh, I don't know, but I hope that I, I don't make the condition worse. Yeah. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. That if you see the website, I guess the the Scotsophones, you know, the category of the Scotsophones performance is theater. I, I correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So that's why. But I don't have problem with that. It means like, uh, if the Scotsophones, like like I said before, if Scotsophones can mine mine or can play playing, and we will give a benefit for the contemporary arts in Singapore, I think it. I don't have problem with that. So just better dramaturgy. Yeah, dramaturgy there. <laughs> I was thinking many years ago, I, I actually went and saw Ricky Jay. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. He's now passed away, but he is like a master card trick mentalist illusionist who was on Deadwood and was in, um, you know, has written multiple books about illusions and, and tricks. But, you know, a lot of his live shows were directed by David Mamet you know, and, and who was a huge advocate and loved his work. And I was just thinking in, in some ways there is, there are many elements of the, uh, you know, of the theatrical, of, of, um, of illusion. I mean, what is theater, but going into a space and, you know, for two hours believing that, you know, um, a forsaken king will, will be brought to ruin by the greed of his wife, right? Uh, for example, and and we we buy into it when we see the blood and we see the go and, and we suspend all of our, our disbelief, um, and and there is something about it that kind of makes us be incredibly moved by it, right? Um, but um, yeah, so so I think that what you know what one of the things that you know, Sham, what you're saying is that it's almost like the disadvantage really was in Scott's in Scott's, um, I mean, it was his disadvantage in, in a way to be where he was. Um, okay, I've got another question here, and this is from Wei Liang. Given the context of the magic show, I'm thinking how we as audience members are compelled to want Scott to succeed by default. Because if he does slip up, oops, it's gone away. Uh, because um, if he does slip up any any point, it would make for interesting discussion for us but it will be really awkward for him, especially since he's doing it digitally and it's hard to improvise to react to a failed trick. And because the default experience is that he will succeed is in carrying out his show as he planned it, does it make it harder for us to critique the show? How do we retain that sense of spontaneity that usually happens when a magician illusionist interacts with an audience in person? Oh. Anyone an want to take this? That's an interesting question because, um, as as you read that out, the show does create a lot of complicity right from the pre-show, watching the videos in a way that maybe if you walked into a magic show live, you wouldn't feel quite like we're all in this together. But this show um, does do that. We're all in this together, and I agree. I think the show does put you on the side of wanting him to succeed. You want. Um, you want to believe in the magic much more so maybe than if you had watched it live. Yeah. Anyone else want to respond? So I've got another question here um, from Katrina again. Is it possible that the crisis is in the fact that as performance, it isn't really a very good performance? I've actually got two other people who've mentioned this as well that it's easy to mistrust him and the way in which he performed was really as a magician with flourishes in his version of Hocus Pocus. Would it have been different had it been bound to elements of performance, plot, better characterization and acting? I think that's kind of what we're, we're a lot of us are, I mean, you know, when you kind of take together the different strands of what we're saying, that seems to really come to the crux of it, right? That that it, it that it because it it appeared to want to be more than it's than it than it, the sum of its parts we are then forced to judge it based on that and in that way 
it fails to meet up to what it tries to do. And I think this is a quite an interesting kind of point that, you know, this idea of as critics, you know, never try and judge, never judge a work based on what you want to see, yep. but rather judge it based on what the artist was trying to, to do. And, and part of the, the, the role for an audience member as well as for a critic is to try and really discern what was the intention behind the work, uh, first of all, and not kind of, you know, um, kind of, Put on it, put upon it, a weight down by our expectations. Um, Shu Yu says, and let it note about genre. I feel like magic shows also come with its own set of performative performatives for both the audience, skepticism, for example, and for the illusionists. Uh, for example, speeding up during the reveal, slay of hand in brushing his hair, um, which makes this performance trickier. Uh, which makes this performance trickier. To, to talk about, I think, if we use conventional art criticism, it's definitely a conversation or expectations on many fronts. Is it theater? Is it art? So what if it's a magic, if it is magic that borrows a narrative, what was the audience expecting and what is the audience instinctive response to magic, for example? Would anybody like to kind of just take up that, that point? So is it theater, is it art? And so what if it's magic that borrows a narrative? What was the audience expecting? Was it the audience instinctive response to magic? So this idea of like what we bring to it, right? You know, the skepticism, but did we bring only our skepticism of, of, of that this is going to be, uh, you know, this is going to be an illusionist and my role as a sophisticated um, audience member is to try and understand how, you know, how, did, how was a sausage made, right? How did he perform his tricks? Not, not for me, no. Um, of course, for me, initially, when I was invited to do this, my main question was, why am I reviewing an illusionist performance for Sifa? So I admit that was my initial. But I think this, the comment goes to that question of um, what are we actually reviewing in the first place? Because reviewing a magic show might be different from reviewing a theater performance, might be different from reviewing an online um online, I don't know, magic trick review. Um, and so it gets back to, um, are we even reviewing this as, as art critics? Are we reviewing this as people who attend magic performances? And all of those things would have different answers, I think, because as a magic show, it works really well. Um, his finesse with his, uh, with his tricks and illusions are great. Uh, does it matter if the narrative and the performance was kind of hokey? I'm not sure. If you went for a magic show, you probably wouldn't care. So are we being unfair? Are we being unfair with, have we been unfair with our criticism because we're kind of burdening it? Are we bringing to it? Um, I think that's the question that, you know, someone's now posted. Um, should we question if performance art criticism is appropriate here, here? Do we need to kind of ask ourselves if what we're, you know, uh, the, the whole basis of our conversation is actually perhaps not fair? I, I think not because he really put that the kind of embrace the context of it being this personal connection. Uh, it was all about reaching across geography and, and connecting with one another and in this story of Cali and how we're all tied together in this intimate situation. Um, so I, uh, maybe I'm being unfair because I don't I don't think I would go to magic shows because I, I find them hokey, but um, I think that he kind of embraced the criticisms or he tried to make the narrative such that um, that it deserves critique. So he can, mm. yeah, that's my feeling. Yeah, and yeah. And I think I was just thinking about it and I'm thinking that, you know, when you think about the emotional content, despite the soaring kind of music and the beautiful kind of landscape, you know, all of these things which are signifiers for kind of emotional, to bring up an emotional rise in you. When I think about the work and Kelly's journey from the young boy to finding himself as an old man, for example, um, I mean, I, I would say that the emotional content in the work actually was brought by the audience members. So it was Ben's story, it was um, Dintu say, saying that the slipper, you know, which was the most innocuous of things, 
he held it up because it reminded him of his son. Um, I think some of the audience members were very clear about when they were asked to, to mention dates or numbers, the numbers and the dates that they mentioned uh, were attached to life-changing moments, right? And, and so thinking that, you know, a lot of the items, the, our relationship to the items, the uh, numbers that he used, um, brought actually, I mean, so in terms of being a participatory work, you know, check, it worked because we brought the emotional content to it. But, um, but then in comparison, some of the narrative then could be seen as being quite vacuous. So I, surely, I, yeah. surely he would know that though. I mean, knowing that he's asking people to bring items of personal value or, or moments of personal value, surely that takes some amount of planning and skill as well to to know that the, you're relying on your audience for your emotional content. Um, mm. But the the his narrative itself in many parts for me was very Instagram emotional babble type stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's fine, but a little cringy at parts. But um, yeah, I, I think that perhaps knowing that that you, that you are able to create these feelings in the audience is also a skill that a performer needs yeah. to have. Right. But do you, if you call up these emotions, do you then have a responsibility of care to the audience? Yeah, you do. Mm. And, it, and if you have to state it, then like you show, don't tell. Um, and he kept telling us how mm. we were supposed to feel. And, and it, yeah, Instagrammable moments are, are very obvious emotions that were just tools to jump trick to trick made them all the more hollow. Um, I think of this early um, networked, another networked artwork uh, by Aaron Koblen. It's called The Wilderness Downtown. I think it was in two, two, 2010 or, or so. Uh, this was right when Google Maps came out. And uh, it was, you just typed in your home address and there was no context. Join this piece, type in your your the the address where you grew up and press play. And it becomes this this big performance and there's multiple screens popping up and it's really chaotic and, and amazing. And then suddenly it ends with this person running down the street that you grew up on. And this was right when Google Maps started. So like mm -hmm. just blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And it felt like magic. It felt because mm -hmm. I had never seen Google Street View in my life. And this was kind of my introduction to it. And um, that that showed, it didn't tell me how I was supposed to feel. And that really used the technology, just cutting edge technology in a way that, that felt magic. Uh, and yeah. comparing to, to this piece that was like, I'm going to connect with you and we're going to build a relationship. Slash also time. <laughs> yeah, time and across uh, myth and... Um, so I think if we if we judge those or compare those two pieces, one really uh, was quite successful. And I think of that famous quote, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So he was using these really advanced, really impressive technologies to to display magic. Um, but but it never got beyond uh, sleight of hand tricks for me. Actually, we've got a comment from Sophia, which actually talks about, um, so he says, what struck me was that Scott was able to flawlessly perform his tricks because of his efficient stage crew, from lighting to sound, to even possibly quickly creating the props based on the audience, uh, the audience response. Um, they, uh, they possibly were the reason the journey appeared real. Yeah, right, I mean, I, I mean, okay, so, um, Clearly, the kind of I, I think I read that some of his stage crew worked on things like, um, if I'm not wrong, you know, The Lion King. I mean, he had really a top-notch stage crew. Um, so clearly, there was a lot. But then I think that is that's that it would be said about any big production, right? That you know, the magic that we see on stage happens, you know, with uh, with with a lot of unseen hands, unseen expertise, unseen technology, and unseen labor. Uh, but yes, I think definitely, I was just thinking, um, and we talked about it, like, right, how amazing this work was in terms of just the, the technologically and visually how flawless it was.
but also, um, you know, he has access to resources. And, and I was just wondering, I mean, just makes me think about what um, an arts group, an artist might actually be able to do with that kind of technology, which kind of reflects a little bit what, you know, Ben was talking about that, um, you know, a fantastic crew and technology can make can, and high production values can make a very enjoyable experience but to really kind of touch you emotionally it takes a little bit more than just that right oh i 100 percent came away from it wondering what it might be like to watch a theatrical perform a, a quote-unquote proper theatrical <laughs> performance uh, that had this kind of having the audience sort of projected onto the walls or, you know, we're all there by Zoom, but we can see each other's faces. Um, I, I feel like there's much here to be learned in terms of creating that intimacy, which I have not yet attended many virtual performances that managed to create it as well as this one did. Um, so I think there's something to be said for that. Um, magic aside, whatever... Uh, lack or, or not of his actual work aside, the staging um, and and the the technology and the interface. I think so much so much opportunity to be used for virtual performances. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's nine o'clock. We're out of time, but I think maybe just the last word because um. So we I think a lot of people on the you know audience members actually kind of have responded quite well to the work and. Um, you know, if you had to, okay, did you enjoy it? Let's come back to this, it's setting aside everything that we've talked about. Is this something that you would go and see again or you would um, tell a friend to go and see? Michael? Sorry, what, the patient? What would the you, patient? Would, did you, for you personally, huh? your emotional experience to the work, was this something that you enjoyed? Okay, I enjoy with the technology, the, the maintenance of the space. I enjoy with that and then the yeah magic is always uh, makes me smile and there's a spectacle things there and i enjoy with that uh and you know in the lightness things and the in the live streaming era i think that we we, we know the COVID 19 uh makes us think about how to maintain the live streaming and then for me as a as i don't know as a theater or as a, a performing arts Artists that I enjoy with the technology and how uh, Scott Silvan bring the idea about the the connect connectivity. It means like I I uh, there there is a Western philosopher I guess he said about uh, contemporary arts talk about the darkness of the of each era and then I think that the co the connectivity right now I think it's special and then so that's why I enjoy it moments yeah i think that's a perhaps that's the right note to end on you know that performing arts brings about the connectivity right mm -hmm. um so i you know thank you very much um to everyone for joining us i'm really thanks very much ben shamila and michael for sharing so generously and your friends um, and i hope that the that the listeners have enjoyed the session that we've had. Please continue to post your comments on Facebook and on um, and on Zoom as well. Um, we just have I just have some small announcements to make. Um, thank you first of all very much for joining us. We've we really hope that uh, you continue to follow the Singapore International Festival of the Arts. They will begin their video on demand uh, streaming from the 5th of June, and it's been extended to go on to the 20th of June. There's some really fantastic performances uh, and performances that are divisive, which is what every good artwork should do. Um, it should evoke strong emotions and it you know, should engage people into conversations. Um, we would also like to thank Articuator, we would also like to thank the Arts House and the CIFA, Singapore International Arts Festival team for um, inviting us to be part of the program through the Asian Arts Media Roundtable and for putting together a festival that um, has really been able to bring for Singapore audiences a rare opportunity to go into live theatre and see amazing international work. Um, and for international audiences, once the video on demand streaming begins, a chance to actually take take part and to enjoy a little bit of what we're at the moment the rare privilege of actually seeing works at the moment um we've got three more critics live sessions that are going on uh one critics live session on um, the work by um 
necessary stage called year of no return. We've got another one, um, which is collaboration between City Company and um, Nine Years Theatre, uh, production of Three Sisters, and finally, um, Oiwa, which is a Japanese production. And these three productions, we'll have Critics Lives in three of these productions. You can check our Facebook page for information of when the streaming of our, our Critics Life will be held. Um, and with that, I'd like to thank you. Thanks very much, Ben, for joining us. It's early in the morning where you are, so we appreciate that you woke up early to join us. Thanks, Shamila, for, for being with us despite the home emergencies. And <laughs> thank you, Michael. Yeah. Uh, it's a pleasure to have all three of you. I'd like to also thank uh, KK Nisam, who's the tech manager, and Denise and Nabila, who've been behind the scenes feeding us questions. Thank you very much, everyone, and have a great evening. Thanks so much.